Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history, highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world, one episode at a time. Welcome to another episode of the Leading by History podcast. I'm your host, Masayahu Israel, and today we've got a great show. We've got Ms. Monika Dirksen, who is a PhD student, Temple University, a historian of urban culture with relationship to street organizations, police brutality, etc. And so Today's show comes off of our third part of The Black Gods, in which we will talk about how Black and political religious movements morphed into other fraternal organizations, street organizations, etc., and tying it all back, in, in my opinion, to Marcus Garvey and the work of Garvey. Now, of course, there's a big chasm between Marcus Garvey and a street organization, but I think that Monika is going to help us today to sort of plug some holes in my theory. So we welcome to the show, Monika Dirksen. Welcome to Leading by History. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, we've had some conversations off mic, and I think we've got a great show for the people today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got into the study of history, so our audience can be a little bit familiar with you. Okay, so I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, and my research is basically out of interest, generally in crime, but also urban studies, so like post-1968 U.S. history, and trying to grapple with the idea of the civil rights movement and how it's basically a myth that after 1968, everything is equal for all people in American society. And by looking at gangs, looking at policing, police brutality, there are many instances in which um, we can see that issues of poverty, racism, and crime, and even social inequalities, basically institutional racism, still exist despite the existence of the Civil Rights Act. So, like, the ones involving voting rights, equal opportunity, and, and equal rights in housing, those things are on paper, but they're not being enforced. And it's basically, through my work, what I want to do is make sure average citizens are aware of their history and their rights and push further and join with other scholars that are producing the same types of material. Excellent, excellent. As as uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said, what we're asking of America is to be true to what you put on paper, yeah. right? And that is the journey of uh, Black and Indigenous people of color as it relates to the way that we receive and have received equal treatment under the law. Very good stuff. So when I first spoke with you and wanted to talk about Philadelphia street organizations and then tying it back and talking about the Nation of Islam and, and Garvey and all of that. Was that anything that you had connected previously or did our conversations connect some dots for you that you hadn't thought about or 
have you seen some of these connections? Like, what, what did you think when I said I wanted to talk about Black religious movements and their impact on street organizations? So when I thought about your interest for the podcast, I was thinking about the Black Mafia in Philadelphia. And right now I'm looking at Black juvenile gangs in Philly from 1950s to the 70s. And what was interesting was I'm always I've always been interested in the Black Mafia because of um partly because of Sean Patrick Griffin's book The Black Brothers Inc. And what I wanted to kind of put in my research was stuff about the Black Mafia, but it's so controversial, it's so interesting, but it just muddies things for my mm. for my research, even though it's so thrilling to read and learn about. But the thing that makes it more muddy is that it's the black mafia in Philadelphia has ties to religion. And whenever you talk about religion, people get up in arms. They start to have like this black and white paradigm, not no pun intended because they're talking about it being the black mafia. But people mm -hmm. tend to think that religion is either good or bad and that there can't be anything in between like a a religious person can't also be criminal or a religious person can't mm. have laws. And when you look at the black mafia, that issue comes up. And it, I mean, in a way you have to, it, you have to look at it as people get inspired by parts of different organizations and religious groups. And with the black mafia, Yes, there's um, personal responsibility for the crimes that they committed, but by putting religion into it, you have to put it in a separate category and, and know that things get mixed and that people make decisions based on what they find influence in. So with the Black Mafia, they're starting around 1968 in Philadelphia, um, a man named Samuel Christian, who later joins at some point in the 60s, joins the Nation of Islam, um, and he becomes higher in the ranks. He joins the, becomes a part of the Fruit of Islam and rise up the ranks to become captain. And that, that organization from the Frilly Mosque, he's also going to be a part of the Black Mafia, and he's going to start the organization, and it's going to start in West Philly, have some connections with South Philly, and they're going to engage in crime and murder. Their main things that they were doing in the Black Mafia were extortion, um, murder, robbery, and narcotics. Mm -hmm. But the thing is about the Black Mafia and religious influences is that it's not just a nation of Islam that partly inspires them to create this organization, but going even further back to like the 1910s, like 1914 when you have Marcus Garvey, who has the UNIA, so the Universal um, Negro Improvement Association. And the whole ideology behind it was basically black nationalism, self-sufficiency. So Marcus Garvey, being a Jamaican immigrant, coming to New York, and he had already been involved in politics. He was well-read, well-traveled. He went to Europe. He went all over the place. He went through Latin America. He even established two newspapers in Latin America. And he comes to the U.S. wanting to encourage Pan-Africanism, self-sufficiency in the black community. And this is around the time, the 1920s, 19-teens, 
when the Great Migration is happening and a lot of black people from rural areas in the South are coming north, they're fleeing segregation, inequality in jobs and housing, and, and most of all, lynching. And they're coming to places like Harlem, where uh, Marcus Garvey is, and they're talking mm -hmm. about, he's telling them that you should be happy and proud to be black and African. And we have the ability as entrepreneurs to have our own businesses. So Garvey himself, as you know, he had a, his own newspaper, The Negro World. He had a chain of businesses that he operated, so um, a ship line and things of that nature. And people that will later be a part of the Nation of Islam were not also migrants from the Great Migration, but they, in some cases they were Garveyites that witnessed Marcus Garvey and his organization, joined his organization, and supported it. So even, um, for example, Malcolm X, his parents were involved in the Garvey movement. And mm -hmm. Malcolm X later, like others, will join the Nation of Islam because of what it's putting out, not just the religious doctrine that they accept and believe in, but they're taking in that self-sufficiency, that black pride, African pride that is being purported by the organization. The Nation of Islam, they're preaching black nationalism, but also forms of Islam. So some people will say it's unorthodox because of some of the teachings. But they're also establishing the idea that there can be black self-sufficiency. So they're going to be members of the Nation of Islam that are owning their own bakeries, their laun or laundromats. They're even establishing schools saying that we can educate our own children in our own facilities our own, and have our own teachers within our own community instead of relying on the public school system. In this case, if we're looking at Eula Taylor's book, the Promise of Patriarchy, Detroit Public Schools, which weren't even, in their opinion, giving black children a fair education in the public school system. So knowing that the Nation of Islam had many mosques throughout the nation, members of the Philly Mosque, um, like Samuel Christian, they're seeing this and taking that piece of that, of that teaching of black self-sufficiency, and they're doing that. And, I mean, going off of their personal responsibility, they used it for crime. Let me jump in real quick. I want to jump in because you're running down the history, but I think for the time that we have, we can slow it a little bit. Let's dig a little bit deeper into some of the history you've given before we move to the 60s forward. So we talk about the early 1920s. We talk about this Universal Negro Improvement Association. Garvey is a, and I think all of this as a historian, I want to make sure that these connectors are evident to our listeners. So I want us to really talk about this piece. So Garvey is a student, if you will, self-proclaimed student of Booker T. Washington. So Booker T. Washington, of course, has the idea and the belief that Black people can show, and you keep, you use this terminology, which we'll stick with, the self-sufficiency, right? Yeah. Um, the self-determination that black people can show uh, white folk in America that we are worthy of being free, worthy of being potential equals by working with our hands and doing for ourselves. And I think that terminology, do for self, we're going to see pop up again in the 1960s as you begin to describe to us 
about the black mafia, do for self. Those three words are the foundation upon which not only Garvey built his organization, but Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, and especially when we start talking about the, the Philadelphia Black Mafia. So I, I want people to see the connectors. I'm not saying that Booker T. Washington is responsible for the Philadelphia Black Mafia. <laughs> I'm not making that leap. But what I'm saying is that his ideology spawned the birth of what was the foundation for the Universal Negro Improvement Association of Garvey, which dealt with this determination, self-sufficiency, and also entrepreneurialism. So that belief uh, in establishing schools and establishing businesses and working with the hands and creating a trade, as opposed to being just academic, which is what Du Bois was pushing on the other side, that we needed to not just know for self, but we needed to do for self. Are you seeing that, that connector that I'm bringing there? From yeah, Booker they're C. all in conversation with each other. Exactly. And so when Elijah Muhammad comes with the Nation of Islam, and you mentioned Detroit, right? That's where it starts. And then it moves into Chicago and then begins to shoot up around uh, eastern, the eastern seaboard, right? Specifically in places like you mentioned, Harlem, New York, which is where Garvey went and was able to establish, you know, thousands and thousands of followers. Some have estimated upwards, upwards of 10,000. So we see that this do for self piece is really crucial to understanding because you pointed out something also in what you were discussing that I also thought was something I wanted to highlight that everyone is not joining the nation of Islam and everyone didn't join Garvey. Every, the people who followed Garvey weren't concerned about religious beliefs specifically. Of course, Garvey pushed the belief in a black God, a black deity who supported black people doing for themselves, Africa for the Africans at home and, and abroad. But he wasn't pushing a religious movement. Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam is pushing a black godism, a black ideology, a black theology of a black god and is pushing a specific religious tradition onto the followers, but that religious system is rooted in this concept of do for self. So not only are you gonna get people drawn to the nation of Islam because of the religious component, but you're gonna get some people drawn who don't really care about the religion. They're more concerned about the aspect of discipline the militancy, and the teaching of do for self. Did I harmonize that pretty good? Yeah. Okay, so now that we've got that, now I want you to pick up, because I, I wanted us to be able to explore those spaces as well, because I'm going to tap back into the religion, not for religion's sake, again, when you start talking about some of these other gangs and connect it back. So go ahead, pick up now. We're talking about this gentleman, Sam who starts this black mafia take us there now let's talk about now this black mafia that comes out of mosque number 12 in philadelphia which was known to many people as the hoodlum mosque so go ahead and, and let's pick up there go ahead okay so around 1968 sam christian's gonna form the black mafia and since he's in that circle of being in the Nation of Islam, some of his members will be also part of the Nation of Islam from Mosque Number 12. So they're going to start out 
in the late 60s, early 70s, with approximately 40 to 60 core members, but they're also going to have about 100 associates who work on the streets that are engaging in the criminal activities that they are overseeing. So in Philly, the Black Mafia wasn't the main organization of, like, black crime in the city. I mean, there's also juvenile gangs. So in Philly, as early as I would say for my time period in the 20th century, gangs were a problem in the 50s through the 70s. And then there's still gang activity today. But but majority of the gangs in the city were black, thin um, white or Puerto Rican. And just to go off of that, because I know that some people would think that why is it that only that more black people are in gangs during this time period, post-1950, post-World War II, instead of other groups? So in part, if we look at like um, Thrasher, Frederick Thrasher, who was a sociologist who wrote this book, early in the 20th century called The Gang, a study of 1,313 gangs in Chicago. He talks about how um, ostracized and um, excluded groups of people tend to form and join gangs because they can't fit in with mainstream society. So people that are often marginalized, so immigrants, um, people that don't subscribe to the main ethnic or racial groups, so in this case non-white, they're going to join gangs, one, for protection, because there's a lot of um, racial fighting in neighborhoods, especially during integration. There's also issues within communities of color where people are declaring territories at schools and playgrounds and social clubs and other locations that people in the community share. So because African Americans in the United States have been the most marginalized, in American society, they're going to be the predominant groups in gangs. And also because of the issues of poverty and education, failing them and the housing issues in America being discriminated, they're more likely to join gangs as juveniles and hopefully age out by the age of 23. But so you have juvenile gangs that are forming. And in 1969, in Philadelphia, gangs, juvenile gangs were seen as the biggest issue, not the black mafia. Um, in 1969, Philadelphia was deemed the gang capital of the nation, in part because they had so many gangs. At one point, Philly had over 200 gangs in the city and several neighborhoods. Um, there were also about there was also about 45 gang murders in Philadelphia in 1965, which was a, a true high nationwide. So you have many politicians, community activists, and police trying to keep that control gangs and keep that crime number down. But the black mafia they're going to operate underground. So they're in the in the late 60s, early 70s, they're having meetings in West Philly. Like every Wednesday, they're do having these meetings with their core members. Sometimes they'll invite their associates to the members, blindfolding them to the location and having them sit in and then blindfolding and returning them back to where they operate. And they're discussing how they're using extortion. So basically, in some cases, they're 
going up to black businesses like the 52nd Street financiers and saying that you need to buy protection from us, from robbers and gangs, specifically juvenile gangs and other people that could inhibit your operation of business. They're also seeking protection money from drug peddlers in the city, and later on, they're going to engage in drug trafficking and drug sales. And they're going to make connections with the Italian mob in South Philly. They're going to make connections with drug dealers and drug lords in New York and start peddling and mass selling heroin and marijuana. And oftentimes you're going to see where the black mafia, they're operating on um, low key, but they're going to come into um, rifts with juvenile gangs in the city. So there's even the story from the 70s in the newspaper, in Philly newspaper, I think the Daily News, where they're saying that the black mafia is upset that Zulu Nation, a juvenile gang in the city, is ripping off all their drug peddlers. Mm. And one of their um, solutions is, so secretly, one of their solutions is, so, well, two things. They have two solutions to this issue of juvenile gangs. One, the secret way is we're going to confront them or in another case, we're going to get them into buying marijuana from us. So in one story, new story, they're getting them hooked on marijuana to keep them off the streets and robbing their drug dealers. The other option that they do that puts on a good facade of them as businessmen is operating the Black Brothers Inc. So an organization that yeah. seeks to fight um, gang activity and violence in the city. So they're not only going to have this um, positive organization that wants to help the community, but they're also going to have members like Clarence Fowler, who later goes by the name of Shamsuddin Ali, and they're going to join um, government organizations like Safe Streets, Inc., that is anti-gang, that runs programs that benefit children. So, like, job training, tutoring, therapy sessions. They're going to buy into that. They're going to put on that front that they're good, upstanding citizens, while underhandedly they're running this business of extortion and... Um, drug trafficking, robbery. They're also going to engage in prostitution and other, and gambling and numbers running and things like that. So, so, so wait a minute. Let me, let, me, uh, let me jump in here to make sure I'm clear. So here we have an organization that is upset because a juvenile gang is pushing in to their territory. Yes. And their response to that is to get local government funding to start an organization that works to prevent local gang crime while they still continue to do the dirt in the background. Is that is that am I understanding what you're saying correctly? That's right. Uh, that, that now that that is deep. <laughs> I want to delve. In, I love that. I love that you brought that out. We're gonna take a brief break and we'll, we're we're gonna come back and finish talking about uh, that particular <laughs> interesting point of history.
All right, welcome back to Leading by History. Before the break, we were talking about how the Black Philadelphia Black Mafia was finding themselves being irritated by robberies and stick-ups from a juvenile gang called the Zulu Nation. And in order to thwart these rivals, they start a humanitarian, if you will, organization or a community organization to actually help stop uh, gang violence among the youth in the city of Philadelphia. They received the nod from the local government, and this is a way that they neutralize the neighborhood juvenile gangs while they continue to push the line for their Black underground criminal enterprise behind the scenes, right? I mean, yeah. that's... Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty serious. I mean, that's... I never made that connection in my study of the time. I know that they started Black Brothers Inc. and I I know that I knew that it was a it was a farce, but I didn't understand the beginning of that starting in order to undermine rival juvenile gangs that were in the city. That is really something. All right, but real quick before you continue, can you also let the listeners know because we hear this Zulu Nation. Now, there's something in New York City called the Universal Zulu Nation, which was founded early on by people like Africa Bambada. It was tied to hip hop. Is there a connection between the Universal Zulu Nation of the Bronx, New York, with this Zulu Nation that's in Philadelphia, this juvenile group? Okay, so I would say that Zulu Nation, the juvenile gang in Philly, came first. So, I mean, I, I really love the fact that Philly did something before New York. <laughs> and the reason is that Zulu Nation started in the late 60s, and they were just like a, we could call it a street gang that operates in the city, I think mostly in North Philly. And even though there's no relationship between the group and the juvenile gang, but the one connection that we can probably assume and make is that there was a film called Zulu in 1964 that came mm-hmm. out. And it demonstrated how, it demonstrated the Anglo-Zulu war that happened between the British Army and the Zulus in South Africa. And it was, even though it showed the British Army being victorious, it also showed how the Zulu army, made up of Africans, were disciplined, they were strategic, they were, had self-restraint, and they were well-respected even by their enemy. And that struck a chord with many people in America, many black Americans. And I think that is what inspired the juvenile gang and also the band to mm-hmm. name themselves after Zulus. Yeah, and I'm looking up this movie, 1964 British epic war film about the Zulus and the fight in 1879, the Anglo-Zulu War. Thank you for bringing that out. I had never made the connection between that movie and the establishment of gangs. So, yeah, that's that's really something. But it ties back in again to what we talked about with these three words, this do for self, this desire for self-actualization, and to, to be self-sufficient, right? Like, even in that movie, those are the concepts that seem to be pulling people to want to do something, even though it's criminal. Very amazing. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So, 
I would say that by 1971, the city of Philadelphia kind of got a inkling of the existence of the Black Mafia, and it was basically because of one of the major crimes that it committed. So in 1971, members of the Black Mafia, about eight of them, they decided that they're going to ride this furniture. They're going to rob this furniture store called Dubrow's, and they go in. They tie up several of the workers um, and they go to the back of the store and they steal all the money that they can and while they're in the process of robbing the place they shoot and kill a janitor and once they're done they're they're going to try to eliminate all witnesses and evidence of the crime so they decide to burn the furniture store down and mm-hmm. um, the the crime was so bad I mean there were a few survivors and some of them were willing to testify, um, but and there were some issues with witness intimidation by the black mafia. But that case struck a chord with many in the city and put people's eyes on the gang, the mafia. Even Frank Rizzo, who said it was one of the worst crimes that he ev- he's ever heard or witnessed. So by... Um, Around 1972, the Black Mafia is operating heavily in the city. They're also expanding operations to Atlantic City, other parts of New Jersey. They're maintaining and trying to build more drug connections with um, drug lords in New York. And in 1972, you have them starting to do even more brazen crimes. So the founder, Sam Christian, in 1972, he has a falling out with um, a major drug lord in the city, um, Tyrone Palmer, who was known as Mr. Millionaire because he was a drug lord well-known in the area for selling cracks. So Sam Christian has a falling out with him, and he decides to approach him in Club Harlem in Atlantic City, and he shoots him right in the face and amongst 600 to 900 people that were in the club and kills him point blank and he also kills four others so three women and his bodyguard and the brazenness of the crime basically demonstrated the power and the force that the black mafia had it inspired fear because none of those hundreds of people decided to testify against sam christian and it would continue in 1973. So one of the most infamous cases of violence and murder that happened under the Black Mafia that still had a stronghold in Philadelphia while they're operating drugs, selling drugs, specifically heroin in the city, um, was the Hanafi Muslim Massacre. So this actually took place outside of Philly. They were met by about two members of the Black Mafia um, um, solicited by their member Clarence Fowler, who was going by the name Shamsuddin Ali. He organized it because an ex-associate named Hamas Abdul Khalis, who was once a leader of a Nation of Islam mosque and then defected, he had Hamas Khalis, um, he sent out 50 letters to 50 mosques that basically criticized Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, calling them corrupt and a sham. And he was encouraging the ministers to leave the group, leave the organization. And Mm -hmm. 
Clarence Fowler, he arranged this, I think, from prison, Holmesburg Prison. And he had these two black mafia members go to um, the home, temporary home of Khalis and kill his family members. So Khalis was actually staying in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's home in D.C. So at the time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a basketball player for the Milwaukee Bucks, and he let Khalis stay at his house. And yeah. when in January 1973, when the two black mafia members went to the home, Khalis was not there, but seven members of his family were there. And those two members of the mafia shot two adults and a child, and then they drowned four young children. So children, I think, as young as 15 months old were drowned, and it was a major case. And, I mean, after that happened, people were trying to go at the government, the FBI were trying to go after um, Sam Christian and other black mafia members, putting them on the most wanted list. By 1975, they were national news in the mm-hmm. – it was a big deal that in another case, the black mafia even killed another man that they were associate of. So a man named Major Benjamin Coxon, who was an aspiring politician that was also involved in the underworld. He made deals with any and everybody in the mob. He was with the Italian mob. He was with the black mafia. He was with drug lords. He was just making connections everywhere. And he had a falling out with the Black Mafia. And then one day, members of the Black Mafia went to his home in Cherry Hill and killed him and I think a few other family members. But Mm -hmm. by 1975, they were under deep investigation by not just Philly police, but the FBI. And by that time, they had committed at least 40 murders. And part of the murders that they committed was based on witness intimidation. And that legacy that they left carried over to groups like the junior black mafia that operated in Philly Mm -hmm. and under like this policy of stop snitching which was popular especially in the 90s and the 2000s where you're risking your life if you decide to testify against a criminal. I'm looking at these names and it's coming back to me from Sean Griffin's book right? Yes. And I remember these names Gene Bobain, he was one of the original founders, Ron Harvey, Robert Nudie Mims, Roosevelt Spooks Fitzgerald, Sam Christian, of course. This was the core of the group. And as you said, Sam had risen to the position in the early days, in the 60s, of being a captain in the Nation of Islam under Minister Jeremiah Shabbat. And, you know, I think on that episode of, what was it, American Gangster? Was that the, I think it was American Gangster. Yeah. Um, yeah, where they talked about the Philly Black Mafia, and uh, they talked about how when uh, some of these dudes would get out of prison that were part of the Black Mafia, they were taken to the mosque, and it was alleged, we don't know for sure, but according to what was said, was that they brought them to meet the minister, Jeremiah Shabazz, and uh, said that this brother's looking for work, and he said he put a gun on the table and looked at him and said, do for self. And so this really brings back a lot of memories, especially when you talk about the Hanafi murders, uh, which was clearly a religious hit, right? Like that had yeah. nothing to do with drugs. It had nothing to do with criminal activity. The Hanafi murders were purely because of Abdul Khalees' 
constant picking and disrespect at Elijah Muhammad, who was called by some the black Muslim godfather. So, and this is not to allege that Elijah Muhammad had anything to do with the criminal activities, but it was clear that there were members of the Nation of Islam who not only in Philadelphia, but also in Newark were willing to take it there, if you will, for their belief system. So it's interesting that we see that some of the of the discipline, the militancy, and even the military style planning of some of these murders and things that were done. Some people call these professional hits, right? Yeah. Um, they're taking what they're learning as members of the Fruit of Islam, having access to the inner workings of the training of the Fruit of Islam, which is the military wing of the Nation of Islam, combat training, and all of that kind of stuff. And they're taking these ideas and applying them to the streets and so, you know, it's interesting to me, Monika, that even today you have artists like A.R. Ab, who's currently serving a long prison sentence from Philadelphia, even Dark Low, members of the OBH team, which is a rap crew out of Philly, but they've got connections to the streets. They've got connections to criminal enterprise, but they're also Muslim. And they went on uh, Vlad TV and did an interview a few years ago where they talked about how there was a conflict between them being Muslim, but then also being gangsters at the same time. And I think Dark Low actually named one of his mixtapes, Ron Harvey Jr., right? So yeah. it, it's interesting to see the connection, not only between the religious world and, and, and even stemming back further into the political world, the social atmosphere of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, but now to see the reach of that into criminal enterprise, but also into hip-hop music. I think that this is a, a phenomenal connection here, but I don't want to stop you if there's another set of years or another element that you want to add before we, before we end up. Did you want to take it into the 80s, 90s? What do you want to talk about now with, with reference to, you know, the street gangs with these links to this this religious criminal organization? Um, so I would continue a little bit with um, how some of it spills into the music industry, too. So okay. even with the Black Mafia family, it started as a drug organization, but they also hid behind a record label to help mm -hmm. them launder money. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would say, I guess, for some that join like the black mafia or groups similar to it, they found some kind of like inspiration and the fact that there was a sense of pride for being black. There was understanding about the struggle of a society that is inherently racist and institutionally unequal. And by engaging in crime, it, it seems like it's a radical way to approach self-sufficiency mm. and i think mm. that's what some people go into organizations like this thinking and that only other the closest like example that's similar to the black mafia is like the italian mob i mean there's also there's other there's other gang organizations and mobs of many ethnicities and races but, I mean, even if you look at the Italian mafia that started in Sicily and Italy, they're coming about because 
their society is inherently unequal. It's favoring northern Italy with education, with government funding, with jobs and things versus southern Italy that started out as a rural industry, rural society that focused on farming and things like that. And their government, even after it unifies, it doesn't industrialize or improve the lives of those that are marginalized. They're undoubtedly Catholic. Yeah. So you, you see even in the in the gangster films, the Italian gangster films, that they go to mass services or they go to confessions and they confess the crimes they've done to the priests. So it's interesting you bring that up because for, for anyone to just think, oh, well, you know, African-American people, black people in America turn religion on its head and then do criminal activities as if it's some unique thing to a specific race, you just brought up an excellent example of how there is a convergence between religion and criminality. And a lot of times it's the principles from the religious belief system, ironically, that actually helps to fuel the passion to continue in the criminal behavior. Yeah. So we're, we're almost into a, a discussion of sociology now. We've, we've branched <laughs> out and now we've delved into sociology. One thing I see in my research that bothers me and angers me is that People know that poverty and racism exists, and institutional racism is institutional racism exists, but it's only when a horrible crime or murder or death or tragedy happens that people start to get invested and act. And that's something that's highly preventable if society was just made equal in the first place, and that equality was maintained. There's still a lot of people that were affected along the way that lost their life either to using drugs, being a part of the organization, or just being um, collateral damage, being killed because someone decided to testify against the crimes that were committed against them or their neighbors or in their community. All of this could be prevented, most likely 100% or or at the least 80% if institutional racism, poverty was just eliminated in American society. And that's one of the main things I try to get across with, with my research. We have to, yes, put the blame on people that engage in crime and judge them and, and bring them to trial, bring them to justice. But we also have to remember the roots of crime. We see in Philadelphia the same dissent, the historical dissent from a political religious organization into a street organization and gang. We see that same thing in Philadelphia that we saw in Chicago. It was the nation of Islam that eventually influenced the black mafia, but it was also the more science temple of America out of Chicago that influenced the Blackstone Rangers in their later development called the El Rukin movement in the 1980s. And so it's interesting to see that these black God organizations have an impact. It's just the impact doesn't seem to be strong enough to draw the people from criminal behavior, but it's strong enough to build in people, again, the sense of identity, that sense of self-efficacy, that ability to do for oneself and be entrepreneurial. So it's interesting to me how these political and religious organizations over time begin to have offspring that devolve from what the organization was to represent into the criminal behavior of the younger people who are affected and influenced by those organizations. I mean, it has been 
Great having you on the show today. We provided a lot of information for the listeners. How can people contact you if they want to get in contact with you, talk with you about your work? How can they learn more about your research? What do you want to end out and inform them about? So I'm affiliated with Temple currently, so you can contact me by my email, manika.dirksen at temple.edu, or you can also follow me and connect with me on Twitter at my Twitter handle, Philadelphia91. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Leading by History. We'll have you back once you finish with the PhD program, and then we can talk about how you finally solidified the dissertation and and give us some insight into what the research process was like. So the best to you, stay safe. And from we at Leading by History, we say to you, peace. Thank you. You too. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We look forward to getting back with you again. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.